Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. Last episode, I talked about the intimidating yet fascinating diversity of oak trees in America. 91 very different species was quite the doozy, but it pales in comparison to the tree group known as eucalyptus. Within the eucalyptus genus, we find around 700 species. What I find most incredible about them right off the bat is that only 10 members of this group don't grow in Australia. The rest can all be found on that island continent slash country. A fact like this easily lends to the idea that eucalyptus trees are an iconic feature of Australia. But like the American oaks, there's a ton of diversity across this group. And there are several important species, so my approach here is going to be staying very broad. In the future, I may pick out individual species and do a bit of a deeper dive, but today I'm just going to take you on a little tour through the eucalyptus forest. And I'm going to try so desperately to avoid doing an Australian accent while we sample the fragrant and fire-prone history of these incredible trees. Before we jump into things, a little disclaimer. There are a lot of recurring characteristics that can be generally applied to eucalypts, but no one detail is by any means universal. The understanding is that there are going to be exceptions to everything I say, and I'm saying this now to save myself from repeating it over and over again. But for starters, let's get our bearings by identifying where in the world of plants we are. Eucalyptus is a genus in the myrtle family, Myrtaceae. This is the family where we find the clove tree, which I talked all about in my Spice Trees miniseries. But this family is also known to a variety of rather recognizable trees. It's of course home to myrtles, as well as allspice, guava, and bay rum. Alongside these, eucalyptus may likely be the most well-known group in this family. And that is actually its scientific name, eucalyptus. It's a word that comes from Greek roots, meaning well-covered. This is in reference to a cap that covers its flower until it is fully ready to bloom. And while the name eucalyptus may be very recognizable to my American audience, Australians may be more inclined to refer to these plants as gum trees, or gum nuts, or stringy bark trees. All of these names have something to do with various characteristics of these trees, which I'll mention as I cover their overall biology. As I've mentioned, this is an overview of around 700 species. Their native ranges focused around Australia and Southeast Asia. There are a couple other genera, or groups, that have similar enough characteristics that scientists lump them into a wider group, simply called eucalypts. Including these other trees pushes the size of the group up to 900 individuals. Today, I'm ignoring everything that doesn't have eucalyptus in the Latin name. And I realize that that leaves out some really cool trees, like the bloodwood tree, but I've got enough interesting material on my plate already. Of the 700 species in this genus, there are numerous divisions into smaller groups based on various characteristics. But there is one broad division that splits these plants into just two groups. The trees and the mallees. Trees are... well, they're about what you would think they are. If you're not entirely sure what a tree is, check out my very first episode. It's called What Are Trees? 
In a sentence, we're talking about single stem woody plants that grow to be above a certain height. In this case, at least 30 feet or 9 meters tall. Some folks may fixate on that minimum number. If it's around 30 feet, is it this or is it that? But many eucalyptus species do not leave you guessing. Eucalyptus regnans, otherwise known as the swamp gum or mountain ash, misleading name, has individuals regularly reaching 300 feet tall. One specific individual, nicknamed Centurion, stands just shy of 330 feet or 100 meters tall. This is just 50 feet shy of the world's tallest known tree, a coast redwood nicknamed Hyperion. Once upon a time, we considered Centurion to be the world's tallest flowering tree, since redwoods are conifers. But explorations into the jungles of Borneo have discovered flowering trees called the Yellow Maranti that grow just a little bit taller. Ultimately, the swamp gum is considered the world's third tallest tree. Though historians claim that there were once swamp gums that, prior to being cut down, were 500 feet tall. So these may have been, historically, the tallest trees in the world. Now, on the other hand, we have Mallees. It's an aboriginal name that basically just means a shrub form, woody plants that are multi-stemmed and shorter than 30 feet tall. Various species of Mali eucalyptus have evolved numerous adaptations to living in the arid outback of Australia. For starters, these multiple stems grow from thick lignotubers, masses of root material that are good at holding onto water and slowly distributing it to the plant over times of drought. Another water-conserving tactic is that some Mallees turn their leaves so that the edges face the sun. This is very strange compared to a lot of plants in northern temperate climates like the sunflower that will turn to face the sun and soak up as many rays as possible. By keeping the leaf edge facing the sun, it reduces transpiration, the plant's exhale, and thus reduces water loss. And then there are also malleucalypts that are succulents, having thick, fleshy leaf parts that, like lignotubers, hold onto water for long periods of time. Speaking more generally, eucalyptus plants are considered broadleaf evergreens. This means the leaves are not needle-shaped, but still hold onto them for multiple seasons while continually growing new ones, giving it a constant canopy. In the tree form, the leaves often take on a lance head shape, long and pointed, that tend to hang down, as opposed to just sticking out from the branch. In the mallee form, leaves tend to be more rounded, with one species known as Webster's mallee having heart-shaped leaves. Regardless of shape, eucalyptus leaves are quite fragrant. They are very oily plants, and those eucalyptus oils are one of their most important uses for humans. But without getting into the extraction of the oils, just being near the plants is enough to know that they're there. The scent is somewhat reminiscent of menthol, a kind of spicy mint that feels both refreshing while also stinging the nostrils if you get too big a whiff. This summer, my parents came to visit me in California, and we took a drive over to Monterey Bay. Of the things I'll remember from this trip in years to come, a prominent one is going to be rolling down the windows while driving down eucalyptus-lined streets and breathing an almost overwhelmingly fragrant air that had nothing to do with the briny ocean we were also right next to. And while the leaves fill our sense of smell, eucalyptus flowers simultaneously barrage our vision with brilliant colors. But you don't actually see them until they are fully ready to bloom. I mentioned with the name eucalyptus how there is a cap that covers the flower bud. 
this protective cap is actually a plant part that is a modified form of flower petals. Same structure, but a different purpose. Over time, the cap will turn from green to brown and start to wither away, after which it exposes brightly colored poof balls, a spherical arrangement of tiny filaments. These filaments can come in a variety of hues, from a simple and clean white to vibrant shades of pink, orange, red, and more. A number of creatures gather to pollinate these flowers, from insects to birds to even some small mammals. And even though honeybees are not native to Australia, introduced populations get in on the action too. It's said that honey produced from the eucalyptus flowers has an interesting pepperminty taste. Over time, those wispy filaments will fall out one by one until a harder central structure is all that remains. This reproductive core becomes the eucalyptus fruit. The fruit of the eucalyptus tree, what encases its seeds and future populations, is nothing wholly remarkable. It is a small woody structure called a gum nut, but these aren't the kind of nuts that you can eat. And it's this structure that lends one of the common names for eucalyptus, the gum nut tree. But that's not the only name contribution these capsules provide. There is a botanic garden in the Australian town of Melton that maintains a significant population of eucalypts. Over a hundred species are featured in these gardens. The volunteers who love the gum trees so much and help maintain the plants growing here are referred to as the gum nuts. Speaking of names, there's also a pretty good reason as to why folks call these trees stringy bark trees. The bark of eucalyptus trees can of course be very diverse across the group. Many species have very quote-unquote normal bark that exists in much the same way that other tree species bark does. It's a thick outer layer of dead tissue that protects the tree. But in many eucalyptus species, the bark is a layer that replaces itself every year. When it does so, the year-old layer will simply peel off in a sort of stringy consistency. Some specific species, called ribbon gums, will shed their bark but not fully drop it, leaving these ribbons of fibrous material just hanging down from the tree. This peeling of the bark creates another wonderful sensory experience. Oftentimes, tree trunks come in very few colors. You mostly just get shades of brown or gray, or white if you're special like the birch or aspen. As the eucalyptus bark ages, it changes color, so that when it peels and exposes a fresh layer, you end up with a multicolor tree. You of course have your shades of brown and gray, but also sometimes some red, or even green. One species noted for its variably colored bark is aptly named the rainbow eucalyptus. In Latin, eucalyptus deglupta. A silly name that took me five tries to say. This is actually one of those rare species that grows outside of Australia, limited to the rainforests of Indonesia and Papua New Guinea. Prior to peeling, the bark is an interesting but unassuming dark orange color. But when the old layer is shed, it reveals a mosaic of new colors beneath. Shades of red, green, a brighter orange, and this purplish-brown color that, in certain lighting, looks very blue. How often do you see a blue tree outside of Dr. Seuss books? And did I mention that these trees can grow to be over 200 feet tall? Not only are the rainbow eucalyptus a swirl of hues, but they're also giants of this Southeast Asian rainforest. Truly magnificent. That, of course, leaves us with the more frequently used common name, the gum tree. Though our modern chewing gum did originate from trees, those trees were not eucalyptus. 
This gum is simply in reference to the sticky sap or resin that gum trees secrete. It's a great example of how despite there already being such marvelous things about eucalyptus that we can easily see or smell, there's even more going on when you take a look beneath the surface. The eucalyptus group likely evolved around 60 million years ago, back before the continents of the southern hemisphere drifted apart. In fact, the oldest fossils that resemble eucalypt species were discovered in South America, a continent this group is not considered native to in our modern day. These species would have gone extinct as Australia began drifting away, leading to the genus being as geographically locked as it is. Even while that happened, eucalyptus trees were still not as dominant of a plant as they are now. Three quarters of Australia's forest area is primarily comprised of eucalyptus species. But tens of millions of years ago, the island continent consisted of a moister climate, and thus eucalyptus was more likely just another rainforest tree, like how the rainbow eucalyptus still is in Indonesia. But around 20 million years ago, we saw Australia's climate start to dry out, and this was very good for eucalypts. According to fossil records, the diversity we see in this plant group today really took off in an explosion of speciation around 2 to 10 million years ago. Why would this have happened? Eucalyptus trees are known to be what are called pioneer species. When an area has been recently disturbed and fresh land is unclaimed by other plants, eucalypts are great at taking over this new prime real estate but their weakness is that they need that open space. They struggle to compete with other plant life. A dense rainforest is not the kind of place a eucalyptus species can create a dominance in. And one of their structural failings is that their leaf canopy is rather sparse and lets a lot of light reach the forest floor below them. If nothing is done, other plant species have little trouble moving in and covering any free space that eucalypts need to grow their next generation. In order to prevent this and maintain dominance, eucalypts sabotage their competition. Remember how the bark of these trees peels off and replaces itself every year? With little context, this doesn't seem like a better trait than a thick bark layer that better protects the tree. But the peeled bark that falls to the forest floor has a few secrets. First, these strips of wood have a composition that resists decomposition, meaning that when they hit the forest floor, they just stay there whole and don't break down into nutrients for other plants. Second, the eucalyptus oil that can be found in this bark is highly flammable. When Australia dried out, this climate trend led to the continent being heavily prone to fires. And when a fire reaches a eucalyptus forest, it finds a ton of fresh fuel in the form of peeled bark and uses it to burn through any other plants trying to get established on the forest floor leaving plenty of space for the next generation of eucalyptus trees. Meanwhile, the eucalyptus trees have developed defenses against this high frequency of fire activity. There are apparently reports of eucalypts succumbing to fires, even exploding, because of the flammable oil found throughout the plant. But the bark that is grown as the fresh layer is supposedly quite insulating and is one way that the tree is protected. On top of that, literally, the extreme height of several eucalyptus species is itself an adaptation to fire. What's going to be more likely to burn, a chunk of wood a meter thick or a bushel of oily leaves? 
By keeping its crown so high above the ground, it keeps its most vulnerable parts out of danger. We see this same adaptation in other famously tall trees, like the coast redwood and the giant sequoia. But what about the Mali eucalyptus? I mentioned earlier that these multi-stemmed shrub species grow from a thick root mass called a lignotuber that helps the plant retain water. Another quality of these lignotubers is that they are fire-resistant and have response hormones that know to send up new shoots after they feel extreme heat. To misquote Chumbawamba, even if these plants are knocked down, you better believe they get up again. But while these fire-starting trees are seen as natural and normal in their native range, their aggression has drawn ire in other places around the world where they have been introduced. California is one such location where it is common to introduce eucalyptus trees. From a climate perspective, much of California is fairly similar to Australia, but one big thing these two areas have in common is being prone to fire. Eucalyptus trees were primarily introduced to the state in the early 20th century, and for decades the residents couldn't decide whether or not they liked them. The fragrance was incredible, and their height so majestic, but the way they just shed their bark and dropped it on the ground to be left in piles made it a dirty tree. And these negative connotations continued to grow until they blew up in 1991. That year saw a massive fire burn through the Oakland Hills, destroying 3,000 homes and killing 24 people. Once it was put out, journalists were quick to blame the groves of introduced eucalyptus that covered the land with fuel for the fire. While it wasn't these piles of peeled bark that started the fire, they were seen as a reason that this fire turned into a firestorm. The question is, was this accusation fair? California has a history of fire. Much of the state's climate is notoriously dry and has been getting drier over the past century. Dry grass and other dead woody material, increasing in volume thanks to invasive beetles, are no less flammable than eucalyptus droppings. But at the same time, any place where eucalyptus trees are shedding their fire-prone material is simply making an already bad situation even worse. And if any plant species is going to burn down your state, you'd probably prefer them to at least be natives rather than non-natives. After all, eucalyptus forests have caused countless fires in Australia, some very hazardous to human civilization there, but you're less likely to hear folks clamoring to eliminate their native forests. This is because, despite what are clearly issues with these species, eucalypts do have many benefits. Before we get to the human impact, I'll mention some ways these trees positively influence their ecosystem when they're not actively burning it down. One of the most recognizable animals that calls Australia home is the koala. And aside from their rampant chlamydia, these small marsupials are incredibly adorable. Some more exaggerated myths may tell you that koalas exclusively eat eucalyptus leaves, and while this statement is a bit of a hyperbole, the leaves do make up a vast majority of their diet. Sticking with the theme of food, the nectar that eucalyptus flowers produce is an important source of consumption for many different pollinators, including birds, bats, possums, and sugar gliders. Different eucalyptus species will flower at different times throughout the year, so a diverse eucalypt forest can feed these critters for months on end. And speaking of those sugar gliders, the sweet sap or gum of the gum tree is another important food source for many free-floating mammals. Sugar is in their name, after all. 
This relationship is actually presented in the popular exploration and crafting game Terraria, where players can use the eucalyptus sap item to summon a sugar glider and have it follow you around as a cute pet. I would recommend not trying this out in real life. But these same species that use eucalyptus trees as a buffet also tend to make their homes in them too. Eucalyptus forest canopies are a rich habitat for animals like the koala and sugar gliders, as well as providing for critters that don't use it for food, like salamanders, frogs, and numerous insects. A parasitic plant called dwarf mistletoe also tends to find its way into the branches, and while it does have adverse effects on the tree, it also serves as a great nesting site for bird species. And of course, one animal that uses eucalyptus extensively is us humans. Eucalyptus trees have a variety of uses, but one of the most common ways they are utilized today is by turning their wood into paper. Paper is one of the most common products we associate with trees. Many of you have likely had to print off stacks of paper for some work or school project and muttered something about how much of a forest was just used. But I have yet to actually touch on how trees are turned into paper. Paper primarily comes from pulpwood, that is, trees that are grown specifically to be made into paper. When these trees are harvested, cut down, they are first sent through a chipper that grinds them down into small pieces, like the chips that cover the ground at playgrounds. From there, there's a couple processes that can be used to break it down even further. One method steams the wood so as to soften the fibers, then subjects them to intense pressure so as to flatten them into sheets. Another method is to cook the small chips in a chemical bath that breaks down and separates the fibers so as to be able to restructure them into similar sheets. Either style of reconstruction is used depending on what species of pulpwood is being used, as well as what type of paper the end product is supposed to be. After all, you can feel the difference between things like printer paper, newspaper, and paper towels. I'm choosing now to explain this process because eucalyptus trees are some of the most widely used pulpwood species around the world. Especially in Australia, if you ever wonder what kind of tree your paper came from, eucalyptus is a likely possibility. The United States, in comparison, uses a number of native species as pulpwood, with a bulk of our paper products usually coming from pine species native to the southeast region of our country. However, various paper companies and forestry-centered government agencies have continuously suggested importing eucalyptus to be grown in the states as a primary wood pulp producer. Historically speaking, though, an even more common and basic use for eucalyptus wood is as fuel for fire. Eucalyptus serves as an especially good firewood considering that the oils found throughout the plant make the stuff more flammable. They're also incredibly fast-growing, an important characteristic for a renewable resource. A small forest of Mali eucalyptus could continually sustain a community. Those lignotubers so fiercely re-sprout that it really doesn't take long for that cluster of stems to grow back after being cut down. Considering how important firewood was for early humans, it should come as no surprise that humans native to Australia, commonly known as aboriginals, made extensive use of their widespread eucalypt forests. A more ceremonial use for the wood is in the construction of a musical instrument known as the didgeridoo, though much of the construction is actually out of human hands. It is rather common for termite infestations to make their homes inside living trunks of eucalyptus trees, hollowing out the center of the stem. 
these stems are cut and shaped, and that naturally made hollow serves as the instrument's passageway that turns breath into music. I have to imagine, though, that the termites are all removed prior to anyone putting their mouth on it. Nothing about the tree really serves as food for these indigenous populations. The gumnut seeds are really just good for birds, and everything else is too saturated in that eucalyptus oil. But that oil is regularly used for a variety of medicinal purposes, primarily in treating gastrointestinal issues. When early British settlers arrived in Australia, they too recognized similar applications. These uses, along with that characteristic smell, earned these trees the early nickname Sydney Peppermint. To this day, eucalyptus oil is used for its medicinal benefits, but has found even wider use with perfumery and industrial uses. The oil is very common as an essential oil, a topic which I go into more detail on in my Juniper episode. Eucalyptus is said to have very broad applications when distilled, addressing cold symptoms, pain and inflammation, and aiding in relaxation. I try to leave arguments about essential oils' legitimacy as medicine to holistic healers and Western medical scientists, but the idea of its fragrance being relaxing is something that is fairly noticeable. When a tree is so oily that you can detect its wonderful fragrance a mile away, you know for sure that it's a good product to at least make things smell better. Does eucalyptus oil really make a difference in my shampoo or face wash or lotion? I don't know, but it smells fantastic, so I have every inclination to keep getting it. What about those industrial uses? Remember that eucalyptus oil is highly flammable, enough so that a tree with a high enough oil content can supposedly combust. Researchers studying renewable energy options have begun looking into the eucalyptus as a potential source of biofuel. They envision a future where we can simply grow the gas for our cars, and also potentially make gas stations smell better in the process. But as with many potential biofuel candidates, eucalyptus is not yet productive enough to make it economically efficient as a fuel source. Time can change things, though. Further advances in genetic engineering may one day unlock the ability to grow gum trees that produce enough oil to be turned into a legitimate commercial industrial product. At the very least, it has the potential to be used as a fuel additive to boost the octane rating of other biofuels. At the end of the day, the eucalyptus remains a controversial tree. It has beautiful flowers, a wonderful scent, and a trunk painted with a mosaic of colors. It is an iconic feature of Australia and has enough love for it to be introduced to countries around the world. But the destructive potential of the eucalyptus remains. For many people, the gum tree is their least favorite tree, an enemy in the same ranks as the Bradford pear. But what do you think? Would you want a eucalyptus in your backyard or park? Or is it something that should just be left on the island from whence it came? Like the eucalyptus, our next tree boasts incredible flowers. And in two weeks, most of the northern hemisphere should be experiencing something resembling spring. So join me on April 5th as I talk about rhododendrons, trees that speak a secret language and produce honey that will drive you insane. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you have the time, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their awesome stuff at academygarden.bandcamp.com. 
My cover art is by at Boomerang Brit on Instagram. My script editor and social media manager is the wonderful Lori Hilburn. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at My Favorite Trees or on Instagram at Tree Podcast. And if you'd like to thank me back, you can do so by donating to your favorite sustainable organization, some of which are listed on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug. <laughs>